Again, and welcome to episode 17, Wowzers, of Dad Does Drugs. This is a three-part mini back-to-school college-slash-university run of drug chats with some really interesting guests, and it's part two of that. Thank you for the positive feedback on the conversation last week with Dr Ian Hendy, marine biologist by day and two times world natural bodybuilding champion, gym owner and personal trainer by night and really early in the morning and at weekends. He was a font of knowledge about the reality of steroid use, uh, the effects on your body, the effects when you stop taking it as well, the side effects, the good facts, uh, and advice about working out healthily in general. This week, I'm talking to one of the nicest people that I've come across in the world of uh, drug-related conversations. I was delighted to find that Jason Q is one of probably very few people who's just as nice in real life as he is on Twitter. His tweets get enormous responses. He seems kind and thoughtful, interested and genuine online. And when I met him, I found he even looks just like his profile picture. Jason is a high-ranking policeman. We discuss exactly what rank in the podcast, because I didn't understand the abbreviation. He's with Thames Valley Constabulary. He's got a great new job and a good job title, which he'll explain too. The role means that he is 100% focusing on drugs, and I found it really easy to talk to him. He's got such a deep knowledge of the law surrounding drugs, obviously, but he's really happy to ponder and sort of discuss hypothetical situations, possible reforms to drug law changes to police responses to drugs and when I'd spoken to a previous policeman Detective Superintendent Scott McKechnie who is at Hampshire Constabulary I spoke to him back in episode four I knew from the off-air small talk I'd had with Scott that he was a compassionate copper as well he told me he'd felt great sympathy for addicts that he regularly bumped into when he was in the drug squad and they were struggling to stay out of trouble stay out of his police station while in the grip of their habit and he'd talked Uh, quite honestly, uh, on those little bits of banter as we walked up and down the stairs of the police station, about his pride and admiration for dependent users who'd turned their life around. But in the interview, when the tape was rolling, he played my uh, questions away with a very straight bat. So I found it easier chatting to Jason. Uh, I could wonder aloud about drugs and my attitude to them without feeling the sort of hot flush and nerves of an embarrassment that I'd felt when I was with uh, Scott McKechnie. Uh, like I shouldn't be saying this to a policeman. Uh, so, the easy conversation was also helped by the fact that me and Jason were chatting in a tapas bar, not in a police station. Uh, it's a little bit noisy in the background. You can hear the espresso machine, the door banging, the cafe chatter, but you can hear Jason well enough. And I'm a little bit further down the road now. Obviously, that was episode four. This is episode 17. I've done more conversations so certainly a bit more confident and sure-footed around what i want to talk about i hope you enjoy the chat i'll talk to my son credence about it who wants to be a policeman himself at the end So, hello Jason. Hello Bob, nice uh, to meet you. Yes, yes we've, uh, we've had a bit of a wander, we've had to relocate from what would have been an interview in my 
kitchen, but the cleaner was around and I hadn't bargained <laughs> on that. So. It's more, uh, it's more real, real though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we've had a bit of a, a catch up on our walk down the street uh, and uh, we're now in a nice little uh, tapas place and we've moved tables so we weren't next to the people who had come in for tapas. Um, Frightening to death. Yeah. Uh, and we were both trying to work out when we had met and it was about a year ago and you were a last minute standing speaker at a drug symposium and I think you had a different job then to the one you have now yeah uh, so do you want to just sort of introduce what you do and uh, yeah. then and now and what okay. have you uh, so back then um, I was uh, between, between two jobs it was, it was quite a uh, an uninteresting um, I said not to be controversial but it was a very techie upgrade of a police system I mean nothing to anyone outside of policing to be honest um, and if I mentioned the word niche like people in policing they, they rapidly understand why it's uninteresting right. it's, um, yeah very good system but it's, uh, it was to upgrade that, that system so um, nothing too too interesting but alongside that I was working on um, drug diversion and developing a diversion project uh, within Thames Valley Police and that was solely in relation to uh, attempted to reduce the tragic numbers of uh, drug-related deaths. Right, and now I see from the, the footer at the bottom of your email that you're the South East Heroin and Crack Action Area Coordinator. And what does T slash detective uh, do? say? Temporary. So I'm not quite promoted. I, I see. I never will be. Temporary <laughs> detective chief inspector. Yeah. Jason so the tem- temporary is a temporary promotion into that rank. I see. Um, but to be honest, I, you know, I, I could be doing what I'm doing now as a, a detective constable. You know, right. it's, it's the, the rank is, is is not so much of a, a, a thing. It's the, it's the actual role that's the real importance. Yeah. What one? What does so, this action area coordinator? Yeah, it makes do. me sound like a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, it's it's an interesting role. So it's um, initiated out of the serious violence strategy. So I report into the Home Office and I'm uh, posted to the South East Regional Crime Unit. So I have a footprint across the South East and the South East has been designated as a heroin and crack action area in relation to the uh, increasing uh, demand uh, for heroin and crack but also um, and presentations for treatment but also uh, because of the, the tragic number of drug related deaths in our area but nationally as well. So um, there's a real... Um, drive to uh, collaborate and work in partnership with public health service providers, service users um, to uh, identify good practice, share that, uh, help implement that wider. Um, I'll give you a few examples of um, uh, so early warning uh, systems, early warning drug systems. There's not a regional platform for that at the moment right. uh, and that's something I wish to drive forward is to uh, as an example when you have a, a, a spate of uh, uh, drug overdoses right. is to analyse that substance of the cause and identify and alert and educate the, the using public yeah. uh, much quicker. There are pockets where that happens but in isolation but I'd like that to be a regional one. So you see that with um, you know with organisations when their big music festival happens the, and they yeah. yeah things where they where they'll publicise at certain pills yeah, that are strong and what have you yeah but um, you want it with with heroin and crack and things like that well, is that the idea uh, well much wider really so um, drug use is so wide yeah this is why the loop have become very successful and Mandrake too so there's a couple of examples that I draw upon. Mm. Um, so there's some really good practice out there, and I'll, I'll name a few. So, Wedinos in Wales, public health funded Wales, um, have a uh, analysis education um, system, which is which is which really conveys the right language. There's uh, another um, project in uh, Greater Manchester called Mandrake. That's a Home Office lab um, positioned. Uh, I think uh, solely for the or originally for the um, street uh, spice using um, and that is really connected the language for those different types of user groups and then you've got the loop obviously who concentrate on the nighttime economy city centre testing and yeah. festivals who then have a real they, they just get it the language is there for that using cohort to widen that out to the general public is quite a task. Mm. It's difficult. That messaging is really key. 
without condoning drug use, right. but obviously making people realise that there is no safe way to take drugs. But if you do choose to take drugs, then this is the harm reduction. This is the advice to stay safe. Yes, there are safer ways. Yes. Yeah, okay. So when I saw you speak at the symposium, you, I think I think you sort of caveated a couple of things that you said, and, and you have done a, a, today as well, where you're still a police officer, so do you find that you're always like caught between two camps of what you, what you can say and what you might personally think? Um, personally, I don't, I don't feel that. Okay. Um, I might have a view, so I might have to referencing actually my personal opinion is this mm. but I wouldn't want to undermine my Sirocco's uh, position on drug policy or the government's position on drug policy because that's ultimately who I work for however I am entitled to and allowed to have my own opinion and as long as my opinions are evidence-based they're not controversial right and it's actually you know, being pragmatic about what, what drug policy works. Yeah. When you spoke, you introduced yourself to start with, and I think you either used the example or you gave the impression that when you were a young police officer, you were a bit like um, Simon Pegg's character. Uh, <laughs> uh, as this, uh, in, um, I forgot what the film's called. Yeah, um, Fuzz. Yes, where he's like the top cop, yeah. and, and and you were you know you, yeah. were, you wanted to get the, the highest arrest rates in your station and things like that, and uh, and now you're a more mature person who's involved in very drug focused work. So oh, I'm interested in what what's the what's the journey that's taken you through yeah, perhaps it. changing opinions on things and so that's on. It. That's it. That is interesting. I think. Um, I mean, to give that hot fuzz some context, I was in the Navy and in the forces you're drilled, you know, all the day, all, 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 all the time, day in, day out to do your job. Right. Um, so you leave that profession and trade, you know, very, very competent to what you know, you, it's, a, it's a second nature. Right. And when I, you, you carry that into your new, into your life, it's ingrained, institutionalised. Yeah, so, so were you, what, were you in, what were you doing in the Navy? A diver. Okay. So, um, which is a little bit niche, you know, there's not many of us about. It's yeah, it's really tough, uh, a tough bit of the tough Navy. Course. Yeah, yeah. it's good. Um, I'm very proud of that. Um, and... You know, you carry that into your next career. You know that 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 kind of mindset. So when I joined the police, you're taught the law and how to apply the law. Mm. Uh, then obviously you you're influenced by your, your street duties, your tutors, yeah. and your team, effectively your, your you know your colleagues. So when I joined the Met, I had I was armed with this is the law, this is the uh, the, the, the how to apply it. Uh, so and I was, just became. Uh, I kind of I feel embarrassed by this now actually, but I feel I, could, I, could, I became very good at you know recognizing when someone just scored. Uh, I knew where they would be. I knew, you know, the, the kaleidoscope project was in Kingston at that time, and I plagued it. Right. I absolutely plagued people uh, around it, and I was nicking three or four people a day some, sometimes. And I found myself being top of the at that time of the performance culture. So the officers' names were on bits of paper on a on a board in the police station. Yeah, and I wouldn't wasn't satisfied unless my name was at the top. So I was driven to be at the top, you know, at rests, right. stop searches, outcomes. But I made, I made it look like it was working, you know. So I, I had a good outcome rate for stop search, you know, positive outcomes. Um, it was only until I started really to see underneath that my, the effect I had. So. Um, Martin Blakeborough from um, uh, the Kaleidoscope, who I'm, I'm still in contact with, as he, he got me in one day and said, this is what we do, this is the effect you're having. And um, yeah, I quickly learned actually that beneath drug use was a whole world of trauma and a whole world, a whole world that I never knew existed. I thought people used drugs for enjoyment, and that's true for a number of people, but addiction isn't about choice, and it's that. You know, I recognise now the evidence says that 90% of all drug use is non-problematic. 
However, no one chooses to become that top 10% of problematic user. And they were the people I was hurting the most. Right. So I had to adapt and change. You know, I had to learn more. Um, so I quickly realized what I was doing was having a, a far worse effect, causing more harm than good. Yeah. And so then did you choose to you know, move your career in a direction to, to change that? Then, yeah, so? definitely. Yeah, that experience really influenced me. So um, I still continued those skills of recognising when people scored and I was really fascinated with the world of drugs and yeah. drugs policing and I became a, dete- a detective, transferred to Thames Valley Police, uh, became a test purchaser, so you go and buy drugs or deliver drugs. Right, um, undercover was that? Yeah, not, it's not a, there are, there are, there are different um, uh, levels of skill of undercover and I wasn't nowhere near the kind of, you know, the top end of undercover policing right. at all. Um, it, yeah, test purchaser, you could buy any quantity, it doesn't need to be drugs. Right. Could, be, could be a jet ski off of eBay, for instance. You oh, know, it's, it's that kind of right. that purchase. But you begin to really live and understand the world. If you were deployed on the street, you would get to see a, a whole world you wouldn't see unless unless you were living on the street. Does that make sense? So yeah. it, you get to understand communities a lot better, hidden, hidden communities. Um, yeah, that really influenced me. Then I became a detective on a, on a, a major crime unit, um, investigating, working on teams in investigate murder and kidnap um, and the vast majority were drug related uh, and then you know you become and learn a lot more about you know, the harm of drugs and legislation and in the end you get promoted through the this I'm talking I'm short I'm shortening 30 you know, 25 years yeah. um, but you really begin to um, position yourself where you can influence change hence the diversion scheme yeah which which you, you were just um launching when when we uh, when I heard you speak uh, back last year and um, and now is up and running and so you must be quite proud of that then that's, yeah, that's something that you've got yeah. going I'm proud that I feel more proud of the team which has enabled that um, it's not just me mm. you know that's the drug service themselves, Swanswell, have played a huge part in designing that training package and public health have enabled the, um, you know, the, 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 the agility, the financial flex as well to enable that scheme to fit into an existing, you know, tender, if that makes sense, that commissioning, and also our police team. Well, I'm really proud of the fact that Thames Valley Police have really trusted me mm. and the team to get on with this and deliver, deliver something quite radical. So in a nutshell, it's decriminalised in the Thames Valley possession of drugs not you, really. You, no. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Decriminalise is obviously a word that you, you don't want. You don't want to say. But yeah. you, you've got this diversion. So you explain it then. Yeah. So, I'll explain. Um, so um, it has it has copied uh, some of the principles of Portugal. Um, right. So that's where the decriminalisation right. would probably come from. But it's not decriminalisation because uh, it's still uh, fully compliant within the current legal framework. So we use and maximise uh, what's called a community resolution. And that uh, is is a a real golden outcome to protect a person's outcomes, future opportunities. So uh, a community resolution uh, can be applied on the street. You don't have to arrest someone, you don't have to interview someone, and you don't require an admission of guilt. So those principles could be built into a a pathway, if you like, when we find someone in possession of drugs. Uh, So uh, any age, any situation, any previous convictions, any substance as well, uh, we can offer uh, a community resolution being an education package at the drug service, so an appointment at the drug service. And if uh, eligible and uh, someone wants to voluntarily go and take up that opportunity, then um, we can apply the community res- resolution there and on the street, so obviously seize drugs. Uh, yeah. We still record the crime, hence not decriminalisation. Right. Uh, and that person, the, the whole case, if you like, is finished with police on the street, but the drug service take over, engage, assess that person's drug use, uh, work with them, and uh, engage on an education uh, pathway program, which sounds quite arduous, because it actually is quite arduous. It's a lot arduous than what a cannabis warning would be. It's a lot more um, arduous than what a robotic prosecution or caution would be. Mm. It's a lot more thought, and um, the evidence, from our early evaluation 
uh, shows that it's working, particularly for children. Um, so we'd like to broaden that out. Uh, and, you know, and I'll, and I'll sort of ask an open question really is, should we be enabling schools to administer diversion? So you see the levels of school exclusion at the moment for possession of drugs. Yeah. What if schools were enabled to do a community resolution um, diversion instead, but keep the child in school? Yeah. So um, if this was someone who is caught in possession of, of crack or heroin and who has a lot of clearly a lot of problems in their life, looks like they're living on the street, that sort of thing. Um, the diversion for them, I guess, is going to take a different route than if I'm a student, I'm 19 years old, and, and I kind of run into the police on a Friday night and I've got some ecstasy in my pocket because yeah. I'm on my way to a nightclub. I'm in a university and I'm a nice middle-class person that's got lots of prospects. What are the two? It's the same. It's the same, it's the same process. Okay. Actually, it's designed for that most problematic person at risk. So every opportunity will be given to both users, yeah. but um, the level of engagement and the tactics used by the drug service are completely different for that level in, you know, for that engagement opportunity. So, as an example, if some, in your example, someone with cracking heroin living on a bit of cardboard, yeah. um, then it might be that the soup kitchen has a greater opportunity to engage with that person and get them to the drug service to, you know, to re-engage. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they are a problem, you know, they have got a problem with drug use, you know, there's yeah. got problems in their lives but, and then the drug use is, is running along with that and certainly not helping them solve those problems. So there does need to be some real engagement there to yeah, try and help absolutely. them. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, for that level of user, if they're, if they're pinning and snowballing six, seven times a day into their groin because there's no veins left, um, I mean, to be honest, I'd be happy if that person had another engagement opportunity at a drug service and left with naloxone or, you know, someone knew where they lived with some harm reduction. Yeah. That's key. It's keeping that person alive. And, and I think the key to keeping people alive is actually that, that frequent engagement. And that's why the scheme is unlimited to that example. Um, you want to give that person as many opportunities as absolutely possible. Um, and as long as they're engaging, then you can keep that going. They do have unlimited opportunities. There isn't a sort of three strikes and the other thing. No, no, okay. and that's really crucial. But if someone doesn't engage, this is key, right. um, they will then, uh, that process can be escalated into the traditional policing routes that hasn't been taken away. Right. Um, and, and the other person that we talked about, the other example of, of being that you know the, the, the student uh, who's you know just got some ecstasy in their pocket, I say just, but, but they've got ecstasy in their pocket because they're on a night out, and they don't you know wh whichever drug service they're referred to, they don't have a problem with drug use. It's just an occasional yeah. thing. Then what, what's it's the sort of outcome for so them? It's then? education. So um, there's evidence that, uh, and this is uh, uh, from the loop actually, in the nighttime. Economy, um, I think it's eight out of ten people never receive any, have never accessed a drug service or never received any uh, drugs uh, education at all. Mm. Um, but the evidence again about drug related deaths is that's a high risk group, and the, and the, and the uh, increase in cocaine deaths or cocaine related deaths have increased again year on year, yeah. and it's offering those educational opportunities whilst protecting that person's future opportunity. Um, there's, I'm, I'm in that symposium, I use an example of a plumber yeah. um, that uh, had this case study that had um, uh, found in possession of cocaine by Dorman, was arrested, uh, went no comment, drugs were sent off analysis, uh, was actually charged, fifth pound fine of court. What good did that do that person? What, what good did, did they unpick the fact that actually the reason maybe he went out was to escape the family life because he was under pressure because his business was in debt and it's unpicking all those layers of why that drug use is happening mm. um, it's you know, is that person at risk of developing a problematic use uh, that intervention uh, drug service is far far more valuable than that intervention at the police station yes because um there's lots of uh, 
lots of different arguments, whether you know morals or historical principles and all sorts of things as to why we view some drugs as okay and some drugs not. And yeah. um, there's plenty of people that can use and do use with some regularity drugs which are currently illegal and, and don't have a problem with them and aren't likely to develop a problem with yeah. them. They'll either grow out of that yeah. phase or... Going back to the kaleidoscope, when um, you know, I was a young PC in uniform, um, I would see people in suits and suitcases going in to collect their methadone at seven o'clock and going into the city. Right. You know, they, they were using heroin, yeah. but non-problematically, if that makes sense to yeah. And it's living with an addiction, but actually fully functioning too. And um, I, you know, you, you've been talking about, you know, so drug-related deaths is your uh, area of main concern. And the, 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 the recent stats for, I guess it was 2018, yeah. figures have just come out and, and everything's gone up, uh, which I found thoroughly depressing. Yeah, uh, I started this podcast project sort of over a year ago, and I think I, you know, felt all enthused and felt like starting a conversation was, was vitally important, and, and I'm pleased with everything that I've, I've done, and I do stand by it, but I thought, hmm, you know, young people, more young people have died from taking ecstasy than they did uh, in the previous year's figures, sort of nearly double, and uh, yeah, cocaine deaths are going up, and and it made you know just made me think you know I don't know what I don't know what the answer is because in the same time then uh, it just happened to sort of coincide with all the um, Tory leadership run-up thing where all, all these Tory leadership candidates were sort of going, oh, I once drank a cannabis lassie or had a line of this or that and the other and I, I thought there's no actual honest conversation about any of this they were all saying it was I thoroughly regret it and I, oh, I'm not sure this is helpful to any conversation and yet the figures are showing that we need a, a helpful conversation and how do you sort of remain positive and, and hopeful that, 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 that there's a thing we can turn around yeah I think I'm not dodging the political yeah. examples at all, but I'll leave that part there for a minute. Okay, okay I will come back to that. I do have some views about that, but um, the I think yeah, four thousand three hundred fifty-six people recorded are recorded to have died in the last ONS stats. Yeah, that's likely to be a lot higher because of the the way drug-related deaths are actually recorded. Um, for instance, they, you know, there's there's the analysis is quite wide. You know, you might get someone brought into hospital with liver failure, for instance, that, that who's a lifelong heroin user or you know or a drug user. So, um, that, will they all be captured in the same way? Um, I'm not convinced every single drug-related death is properly recorded. Um, and there's, um, there's, there's, you know, there needs to be some work to be done to identify properly the true scale of drug-related deaths. Um, I think you know I, I use an example of drug driving. Uh, they do um, fatal traffic accidents attributed to drug use? Are they recorded in those figures too? Right. Um, so, so the issue is quite wide. Um, but the first thing I want to say is is that when you when you use, when you use stats like four thousand three hundred fifty six drug related deaths, it's quite easy just to read that headline. But you need to look underneath that. And you need to look underneath actually. One of those people will be a mum, another will be a brother, another will be a sister, another will be a school teacher, another will be someone who works for the NHS in radiography or in A and E or you know, or a, a banker and it's that real life humanizing yeah. aspect that drug use, addiction and drug related deaths touch so many people's lives. And it's the work of yeah, anyone's child, drug fan, that bring those lives back to reality for people to see. And I think that's really, really crucial work. They do um, so much, I think, to humanise drug-related deaths. And, and I think we really do need to see the true stories about those people affected. Yeah. Uh, because... A drug-related death isn't just one person in isolation, it's their family and then their community. Um, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think um, my role is a very small part of that. I think um, it's great to see the Home Office you know, funding my role. That's massive. The Home Office come in for 
some criticism quite frequently you see on social media, for instance. But actually, they funded this role to join the dots and piece good work together. So that, that's that's a real positive. Um, and the community I work with, Public Health England and the Home Office and my colleagues, you know, really put a lot of passion and skill and expertise into reducing populated deaths. There's other um, aspects like the Dane Carroll Black Review, that's far-reaching and really detailed. Um, I've taken part in that review um, and uh, looking at you know, the, the contributions of evidence to that review, I, I would be very surprised if we don't see radical change at the end of that. The recommendations, I believe, will be will be really far-reaching. And in fact, we gave evidence at the Home Affairs Select Committee for our diversion scheme. And it's you know, we're being listened to, and um, that that's quite promising. I think there are there are some quick wins, I believe. Um, and again, uh, I won't be thanked for saying this. I, I know I won't, but. Drug consumption rooms are a real necessity. Really need to unblock those barriers, as I prefer the phrase, um, overdose prevention centres, because they focus on the most hardest reach hidden communities yeah. and they provide a safe space for those people. But what it also does is it provides someone a golden opportunity to engage in the drug service again yeah. and, and also open up um, opportunities for hemorrhagic treatment. Um, and again, that's a potential lifesaver to re-engage someone back onto a programme that's not been there, there before. Yeah. And these things are expensive. But again, then we need a, a wider pragmatic conversation about how the Proceeds of Crime Act money is spent and formulated and actually work together to enable all... I mean, if you could imagine all the many millions seized criminal assets seized mm. well let's push that into harm reduction and save people's lives you know this money was profited from the most harm that has been caused well let's reinvest that to put that right yeah I feel like Brexit has sort of pushed anything else in off the political agenda it feels like I spoke to Norman Lamb back in December I think so you know nearly a year ago and it happened to be the same week that some massive Brexit thing was kicking off then and, and we're no nearer a resolution to that and I don't know if, if any discussion of anything else like drug policy reform has happened in any of that intervening 10 months or so so I don't know if things are happening at the moment but um, I, do, I do know that work work is ongoing right. you know, I'm, I'm at the home office every six weeks only in a small part a small role or Right. But um, I do know that you know, the MPCC Drugs League, Jason Harwin, is extremely busy and yeah, there's a lot of activity going on. I couldn't tell you what, what's going to happen. Um, I would truly, absolutely love to see a drug consumption room or overdose prevention centre opening up in the cities that need it. Right. Um, and, and I will do everything I can to enable that too. I will absolutely support the evidence base is there. Let's build that evidence base for those most at risk groups. Um, so, yeah, so that makes sense for, for the, yeah, those really um, at risk users of heroin and things. Are, at the moment, they're doing it in dirty places, in dirty conditions, and you know, yeah. with no one there to administer naloxone exactly. if something happens. Yeah, we need to change the mindset, don't we? You know, we're looking at the street now, aren't we? Yeah. I guarantee that I, if we go for a walk afterwards, we'll find some drug litter. You know, outside yeah. is a drug consumption room. There'll be needles out there. There's a park that's down there. I guarantee there'll be a needle or two. And it's it's that mindset that we need to actually take that away, and and where the need is, where the um, focus points are for drug use, open up a, a medical facility to protect those most at risk. And what is the big barrier to that? Are people just sticking to the law, or uh, do people have sort of? Objections to yeah, some other there are a couple of barriers. There are a couple of legal barriers. So, um, Section Eight of the Misuse Drugs Act prevents the management of a premises that encourages or incites the preparation of opium. Right. Um, and um, so, there there are legal difficulties. I believe there is a way around them uh, um, ethically. I yeah. do believe there's a way around that in a, in a partnership approach. Um, I also question, and I've uh, raised this at the. Scottish Affairs Select Committee on Drug-Related Deaths is that I actually don't believe, and this is a personal view, I couldn't, because I wouldn't want to encourage someone obviously breaking the law, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, but I don't believe there's the public interest to prosecute should one open where there's the need to save lives. Right. Um, 
you know that that might be seen as controversial, but it's a fact. Yeah. I actually do think that's a that's a, that's a um, an issue that needs to be discussed and debated wider. Um, you said there's some other quick wins. With, what, what else? Yeah, I think um, so. An early warning drug system. Um, so when we have a, a fatal or non-fatal overdose, it's the consistent approach to investigating that. Um, whether it, if it's a, a, a crime investigation, obviously that takes place. However, more often than not, it's um, an overdose and a report to the coroner. It's about quickening the process of. Um, toxicology, so bloods, um, and any residue substances being analysed to inform the wider public, using public in that locality, about the risks. So if there's a fentanyl strain in, a, in heroin, yeah. or if there's um, uh, you know, some uh, real nasty fake benzos out there, like you know, Xanaxes or Valium uh, that have been um, bought over the dark web, for instance, that are not, not what they intended to be. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot we can do. And also, um, encouraging police as first responders to uh, be trained and equip themselves with naloxone. I've got mine in my bag. Right. Um, I carry it everywhere because I'm in a I'm in a role now where I access drug services every day. Yeah. Um, and I'm more likely to come across someone that hopefully not, obviously, in a position where they've overdosed. So so there must be things that police officers have to carry with them, but I, I guess you can also equip yourself with optional things that you yeah. find useful you from can, experience. Yeah, yeah there's um, so obviously there's clinical governance, which is really important about the role of police. Um, right. uh, an ambulance is going to be called anyway yeah. in a situation, but police are out there on the street. West Midlands Police have pioneered this, so they've um, uh, uh, initiated uh, <laughs> issuing and training their frontline cops with um, intranasal naloxone, right. which is a small capsule, yeah. um, and it can save a life. Yeah, absolutely can save a life. And it's like we need to get over the stigma of drug use and drugs, uh, drug-related deaths and overdose. Yeah, stigma was uh, was one of your big messages in that talk you gave, and I suppose I've, I've taken that on board in the, uh, trying to encourage conversation. You know, where, where sort of honest conversation with my own teenage son on, on each episode of the podcast we sort of he'll listen to this interview and then we have a conversation afterwards about it so I feel like he now has a whole load of knowledge about drugs that I don't think can be anything other than useful yeah. when, when you come across then drug use mm. you're sort of familiar with the terms you're familiar with how dangerous some things can be mm. uh, or or just how to handle certain, you know, what what sort of behaviour to expect from certain people and, and, and things. Um, so that must be reducing sort of a kind of stigma. Are there other bits yeah. that you are really kind of passionate about? Yeah, changing? definitely. I think I think it's the. Oh, when I mentioned the word safeguarding, I mean, I've got to open a can of worms. Safeguarding is absolutely fundamental to the role of policing and our wider partnerships to, you know, um, safeguard people from harm. That's what we do. But included in that safeguarding people from harm is addiction. The video that I showed in my presentation was actually about showing the fact that a single dad had his school-age daughter living with him. He couldn't seek help for his addiction for fear of losing her, so he self-medicated his addiction by trying to manage it as well as he could. Yeah. Couldn't get the help he needed. But if he had lost his daughter in that process via safeguarding, then that probably would have killed him anyway a lot quicker. And it's that we should be we should open the conversation to actually we should be supporting him and her mm. and we should you know it's, it's that I, I get the need to safeguard her obviously that's that's absolutely paramount but we also need to apply the same level of safeguarding to him and it's those hidden people that are fearful to reach out for help for fear of losing something their job their position their uh uh, you know, uh, contact with children. You know, for instance, we need, I think we need a different conversation about what drug use is. Um, in the same way, in the same similar way that alcohol is approached. What, what, I suppose then, what, what's your 
uh, if you could influence overall drug policy reform and what sort of things would you like to change? Would it be to legally regulate more things? Would it be to decriminalise um, possession? And would it, would it be on the other side to make uh, you know make alcohol less of a heavily marketed um, you know sponsorship of sports events type of product and more like tobacco is where we've gradually we haven't made it illegal but we've no. gradually made less people yes. want to do it because smoking's gone down hasn't it yeah you know, so I'm going to be factual and evidence based yeah. so um, we have a population of what 65 million I get I get the difference in size of population yeah Portugal have 10 million population we had 4,356 deaths last year um, Portugal had I believe 16 you have to look at that evidence what yeah. are Portugal doing so right yeah and if they decriminalize uh, all drug possession and uh, have, have a pathway for dissuasion and engagement then surely we need to look at that evidence that's evidence-based um, so it's not just a one bloke called Jason Q who happens to be a cop saying let's decriminalise it's bigger than that yeah. it's a bigger voice than that the evidence is there saying that this actually works my stereotyped probably assumption though about Portugal is that they have a sort of Mediterranean attitude to mm, the intake true. of intoxication. Yeah, we do binge, don't we? Yeah. And over here, you know, if you made everything legal, everyone would go, great, let's try that, that, and that as well. And, and you know, I, I think it could be, evidence would suggest that if you only took some ecstasy and went to a rave and didn't mix it with alcohol and you, and you took it at the right sort of dosage and things like that, then it shouldn't be very harmful. Cannabis, again, if you, if you took it as a way to relax on a Friday night instead of heavily drinking might have better long-term health effects than yeah. uh, than if you carried so on, on drinking. On that, I think there's, um, if you look at, again, the, the recent evidence base in behavioural change, that, and I'll just draw reference to the loop at festivals, they're seeing one in five people actually forfeit their drugs once they know what's inside it. Yeah. And I think actually at Boomtown, this is in fact this is a really good example. So at Boomtown, the Loop identified Superman orange Superman pills uh, that contained a catenone. Um, I can't remember. I'm not, I'm not a chemist. I can't remember what, what the ingredient was. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it had previously caused um, deaths in the past. Yes. Once that had been identified, and quite rightly, is dangerous. That messaging, in conjunction with TikTok, another uh, drug testing um, uh, lab, that messaging hit the audience within an hour. Um, that audience then were disposing of those pills. So that, how could you police that in the same way? You couldn't. I don't think the police could have had the same effect. No. That came in a different level of language, a different level of respect. That the loop have tested this. They've got the warning. They've got the education out there. And in fact, that impacted because the suppliers of those orange Superman pills were then crushing them up and sending them as powder. So reselling them as something else. Yeah. But the warning was already out. Yeah. So actually, how could that? That that I I've no doubt at all that that saved lives on that day. And it's, so, so behaviour change. Linking it back to what your point was about Portugal and the UK binge. Yeah. I think actually with the right knowledge the right messaging the right education we can achieve greater behavior change yeah it's having a sort of a shift of our sort of culture our cultural approach to intoxication i guess and then relaxing through the substances or just using substances for a bit of a change whether it's a coffee or whether it's yeah. a, a beer or whether it's cannabis or whether it's ecstasy we used it that example of smoking why has smoking gone down is it the labeling What's the actual key to to that reduction? Yeah, that's massive, is it? Is it the law about smoking outside and you know on premises? All of those things collectively, that's a real win, isn't it? That's it's saving people's lives. Yeah, and and improving for most people the quality of like yeah. us sitting here in a yeah. cafe like this. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're having a meal, yeah. uh, remember, you know, just it's as you're having your pudding, someone else thinking. is lighting a fag at the yeah. table next to you. And it's like, oh. So all of that's gone, and I think most people would go, yeah, it's much better. Yeah. Uh, as a result that's a Navy story actually so when, when that law came in I 
was in obviously in the navy. Right. And so smoking was allowed in in the mess. Yeah. So you'd have. 50 or 60 people smoking cheap blue, blue liner cigarettes for those ex-Navy out there that might be listening. Um, but it, it was awful, it was rancid in a, in a mess. Yeah. That law came in and overnight, people went out smoking the mess. It was bliss for me, yeah. I've never smoked in my life. Right. So I absolutely, you know, it's yeah, yeah, a tangible I, difference. And I definitely noticed that difference of uh, straight away, and then you know the next day of a night out you didn't have to wash all your clothes and things it was you know noticeably different one of the little bits of of frustration that i again i've sort of felt since doing this podcast is i went to see the loop at the city center testing session in bristol uh, again about a year ago and and i thought it was fantastic and sung their praises of on the podcast and i see lots of people doing that on twitter who've had association with them and then this year it seemed like they weren't allowed to do that front of house testing at any festivals where they had been previously and I've, I felt like oh, that's another slightly depressing battle against red tape mysterious uh, permissions yeah. and licenses and think, stakeholders and all yeah, that. I think there's a, there has been a, a miscommunication this summer I think um, the position is, is is that the police couldn't bid for the loop because we just we police public safety so we would police the environment that the loop were operating in right but that bid or that process for the loop to be at a festival needs to be bid for in partnership with the festival organizer right the public health safety team and it's that partnership that bid and enable the loop's presence at front house testing uh, and the police will police that area accordingly right so yeah i think there's been a breakdown in communication possibly right so i don't think it's anything mysterious i think it's more about actually people getting the uh, their, their ducks in a row to bid for the loop oh i see um, okay but obviously the loop aren't the only I think they are the only provider actually in the UK that do uh, special testing. But you know, it's that, it's, it's, I think it's in the interest of fairness too. The Tic Tac, Wedenos, uh, another Mandrake. You know, there are other labs out there that yeah. do similar testing, but obviously not in festivals. So I think it's a uh, it will balance out into to what you know, what's equitable for everyone. Yeah. You, you said earlier that you'd parked the, the politics reference oh, just over there. But, uh, <laughs> as a, a just, a, I suppose, a more general then nod to politics, given that we're you know, talking about yeah. that. Where do you see things moving politi- politics-wise um, on, on drugs? I think, yes, without sounding disrespectful, I, I, I do think there needs to be an, a, a, wide, a widening of minds, open mind, you know, uh, open, honest debate about the drug-related deaths in this country. I think it's great to see you know, the, the commissioning of um, the, the, the review, the Daniel Carroll Black review. I think that will be groundbreaking. I certainly hope so. I hope that will be the catalyst then to, um, to grant permission, you know, grant permission for, uh, for, for parties to actually embrace harm reduction, embrace the right, um, you know, the right methods to evolve our drug policy. Whatever that will be. Yeah. I think, do you think, um, you know, I am, getting back to one of your points about um, legal regulating regulating drug markets or regulating markets, um, we do have to carefully look at the successes and the negatives of uh, regulation in in the American states. So Washington, D.C. has decriminalized and regulated uh, cannabis um, Massachusetts, Massachusetts I said that right yeah Massachusetts, Massachusetts. yeah um, I heard evidence uh, last week actually in Parliament um, about their regulated market and the equitable fairness to reduce racial disparity about the, the harms that prohibition have caused you know we need to put those we need there are there are great initiatives that actually are proven to work to reduce crime, reduce harm by through regulation. So if the evidence is there saying that this works, then we need to carefully examine that in the UK context. Um, one thing I would say though is that any regulation 
needs to be, uh, in my opinion, needs to be pushed as a health issue, not a profit one. Yeah. So industry have a lot of influence, and we need to be very careful about how that is applied. I, I absolutely stand by that. Yeah, you're right in marketing. Um, in the same way that cigarettes are marketed, you know, we need to be absolutely crucially clear about what you know, what the harms that some drugs can cause. Yeah. So probably just a final thing. Uh, one of the other speakers on that uh, day at that symposium was Neil Woods uh, um, from Leap UK. Uh, so he's ex-police um, and, and is now uh, against prohibition. So and, and his sort of um, view is that the war on drugs and prohibition the inf- and the enforcing of, of that prohibition uh, has made it all worse. What's your sort of position on that Do you, like he, he talks about the moral injury he feels you know that he's sort of in therapy for over of the, the, the fact that he feels that the policing that he did as an undercover drugs officer was um, you know damaged people and 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 he can you know, point to individuals that he feels he harmed more than helped. And so, do you feel like the you know, the war on drugs is an impossible ask for the police, and, and is maybe damaging to the to the organisation? And that's quite a big question, really. I think um, you know, I actually absolutely support um, much of what Neil um, says. You know, I've um, read his books, and they are very you know they are influential. They're yeah. They're convincing, they're, they're backed with evidence. Um, what I would like to see, I think, is the way the police operate at the moment about you know disruption and seizing kilos of drugs and um, I guess in this never-endless hope that actually the supply would dry up is a fallacy really, it's not going to happen. Um, we have to be realistic and pragmatic about that. Um, I think the greater methods of disruption, disrupting criminality is, is, is possibly disruption through you know, the, the, the financial route has a better impact, a, lot, a longer lasting impact and then again reinvesting those criminal profits into harm reduction I think even if we had a regulated market a criminal one would still be there you know it's not a panacea on its own even if we regulated cannabis overnight how would that 13 year old buy that bag of green for him and his mates they'll still get it yeah they won't be able to buy it in a shop so there'll still be a criminal market what I think we need to do is look at the evidence that, say, Canada are doing with their pricing model, with that example in mind, yeah. to reduce the strength of that, whilst acknowledging, not acknowledging that we're regulating to reduce the potency to children, available to children, clearly that you could never condone drug use for children. Yeah. But I think you, you need to reduce the as much as possible. It's complicated. It's far yeah. more complicated than my brain can cope with. Yeah. But how regulation is done is probably more a more valid question than actually just do we regulate. Yeah. It's more about how that is done. How do we how do we regulate how would we regulate NDMA? You know, I'm still coming to terms with that and there are some brilliant minds out there that have you know, good ideas but I still you know you will still get children accessing wanting those substances. I, it's how do we police that, you know, how do we yeah. reduce and minimise the risk? That's a that's probably a, we could be here for hours talking about that. Yeah. I, I just feel like I keep coming up against the idea that in, in this country, uh, particularly, uh, you know, our sort of bingey kind of party culture, I just don't think, uh, whilst it might over over years and years, decades even, uh, a more responsible uh, and healthy attitude towards intoxication might develop in our culture. Yeah. I, I, I feel like initially there'd be a lot more risk and a lot more harm all of a sudden as suddenly things become available yeah. to um, people. That, I mean, looking at, I mean, look, looking at just cannabis regulation. Uh, you know, this is this is great evidence at Parliament last week. The supply couldn't cope with demand. 
there's a couple of things there. Is they're legally supplying cannabis in chemists or, 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 yeah. or, or shops, uh, but they, all of them couldn't cope with the initial demand. And that just shows you your point exactly about that initial yeah. rush for you know cannabis. If that was you know if that was regulated cocaine, would we see the same? Probably. Yeah. And um, you know how do we manage that? And it's you know these are big, big, big questions. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll ask. I was, was going to ask you a question. Yeah. If I could turn it around that way. Um, how do we? I mean, we talk about behaviour. How would you approach? How would you tap into? How would you reach out to cocaine use? How do you? How how does the behaviour change for cocaine use in the context that you know? I know children who've used cocaine alongside ketamine and MDMA. And I've known you know, adults in all walks of life use cocaine, and I've known you know, people who are retirement age use cocaine. Yeah. And it's how do you reach across that huge spectrum of different? You know, it's so wide, isn't it? Yes. And I suppose we've got a situation now where not so much tobacco anymore, but certainly alcohol is is just used. Uh, all the time for um, celebrations, for commiserations. There isn't many social functions that don't have some alcohol use uh, assigned to them in, in our tree in, in Britain. So, we, as a society, we'd like the idea of intoxication as, as a even if it's just a glass of wine with dinner, or if it's several beers to celebrate a promotion or whatever. That. So we're all happy with that. So then, how do we how do we relate the idea that actually, for some of the things that we want out of that intoxication, some substances would be more more appropriate. Yeah. Uh, but it's trying to for all of us to accept that. Yeah. If we want to relax on a Friday evening in front of the TV, then or listening to music, then maybe cannabis would be more appropriate. But when 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 some of the with cannabis, it sort of seems easy to. Say that because you think people don't die of cannabis overdoses so that, that, that's, that seems like a fairly easy uh, statement to make but yeah the problem I have is cocaine you can die of taking too much of it on one on the first occasion or ecstasy you certainly you know certainly can so it would be a very brave person to suggest making it legal and encouraging people to do that instead of alcohol and you think even if your teenage daughter goes out and has too much to drink she's probably unlikely to die on that yeah. night out, yeah. uh, and this is key, I think, to the yeah the regulation conversation is is it's got to be health. It's got to be driven by health. Mm. It can't it can't be allowed to be driven by industry or profit. Yeah, and public safety is absolutely paramount to everything that you know I, I want to achieve and. You know, I'm not dodging any spiky or prickly conversation about regulation. I'll, I'll have it and I'll hear it and I'll yeah. talk about it. And, um, and I do actually, you know, I do, I do feel that a regulated cannabis market is achievable. I do think a regulated heroin market is a lot is is achievable too. Yeah. Um, we've practically got it with heroin assisted treatment. Um, that might sound controversial to someone that you know perhaps isn't familiar with the type of people who use drugs or yeah. for different reasons and so on. I think it's education. We need to educate the public about what what drugs are and what drugs are you know do yeah. and why some people will use certain types of drugs too. I think it's that education early at school as well, primary school education into secondary yeah. build resilience. Yeah, uh, it's really enjoyable conversation to be able to be open and. Uh, and honest about these things, you know, just sort of just talk about the idea of, and, and I think for both of us, you as a police officer, me as uh, recently someone that's quite interested and in, uh, engaged in drug awareness and education and a bit of policy reform. But even, you know, I think for both of us to go, oh, it's really hard actually. You know, there isn't. You know, I'm, I'm not a rampant legalize it kind of campaigner because I think oh, I'm not quite sure it'll work and it might be really dangerous. So it's interesting to. to 
to come at it from different sides and sort of agree that it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's difficult. I mean, there are there are some brilliant brains out there. Yeah. There's some real experts out there that, that you know, have, you know, we, I think, particularly in this country, we're blessed with, you know, some brilliant pioneers that are testing the evidence and, you know, informing the evidence base rather than just relying on an existing one. Right. Um, so I think we need to you know, create permission for that to continue. So, and if we get it wrong, hence, come back to the DCR conversation, if we get it wrong and it increases crime in that area, if it increases drug use or it increases, or has an adverse effect, we can always go back. We can, we can put that right again. Yeah. I know we don't want to, but we want to, to move forward. Sometimes we do have to... Yeah, make mistakes and learn. Yes, but then I think it does need then the politicians to be to back us up a bit and be prepared to not be so scared. You know, not not just constantly bang a drum of like uh, we're going to be hard on drugs. Well, if it's not working, help by allowing people to say set up a drug consumption room uh, uh, without risking without without their fear that they'll lose votes and what have you, which I think holds it that process all back. That's my concern. Um, well, I won't try and continue to talk about politicians anymore. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much, Jason. Thank That's you. Been really I really good. appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. <coughs> oh dear. Poorly sounding credence for our chat for episode 17, so we won't make it too long. You've got a whole soother. Yep. <laughs> You'll get through it. So you just listened to episode 17, the chat with Jason Q. What are your thoughts? I really enjoyed it, actually. It was um, one of my favourites. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, with his opinion on, like, how he was at the beginning, quite, like, competitive with it, and, like, wanting to rescue people, then realising that maybe it's doing less good than he thought. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? He'd obviously changed a bit over his time in the police, and you're, at the moment, you're in the police cadets and you want to join the police. How, how do you think you'll uh, be with the reality of, of life, which I think like, it must be that if you think you're going to arrest lots of people, you obviously do it because you're wanting to make society a slightly nicer place to be and, you know, get rid of the bad guys and so on, but he obviously realised that, you know, it's easy to think you're doing good, but you're not, so uh, what do you think about it at the moment? Yeah, I agree with what he's saying. It's not great to just lock up someone who's got a serious problem because they're not going to stop when they get out. Mm. Like, whereas something like the thing... Well, I've forgotten the exact way... Um, what was it called again? Uh, thing where, like, he gave them, like, a social... Oh, yes, the sort of... Um, he diverts them into... Yeah, yeah, a, a health education. Route, edu- yeah, health and education sort of route rather than giving them a criminal record. Yes. I mean, it's a sort of interesting grey area, isn't it? And where the police obviously have to deal with someone who's broken the law. But yeah. sometimes if you think, oh, if the way I've got to deal with it is only going to make it worse, then maybe it's better to turn a blind eye or just encourage them to do something else instead. Yeah. Yeah, how do you think you'll deal with that grey area in your head? Because you do RE at the moment, you debate yeah, sort of moral yeah. dilemmas and things. I think it really depends on the situation. I mean, it could differ from, like, one person to another, really, like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't know. I'm interested to see how the police training is, how it tries to make you think, whether they want to sort of brainwash you into thinking like a police officer or whether they really want people to be questioning the law. The and, morals. And yeah, yeah, interesting. And could you remember the episode where I chatted to the other cop? Scott. Yeah, yeah. Did you think that the conversations were different? Well, that was very formal. It was, wasn't it? Like, it was really quite formal. And it kind of felt like most of the questions were diverted. Kind of, like, couldn't really say, because it's quite, like, it's in the police station. And Yeah, he didn't want to give his personal opinion, or he, yeah. wasn't, he wasn't prepared to. It was kind of the police's opinion. Yes. So did you get more out of listening to this one? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Since I've done this podcast I, and I look around now, if I'm walking around the town centre and you walk through it every week when you go to the gym, do you see signs of drug use in a way that you perhaps didn't do before? Well, the most blatant thing in, the, in terms of like people I see, I mean, of course, there's people smoking, that's kind of just like the way it works, but what's quite shocking, I'll be walking through and there'll be like someone like I know at my age that'll be smoking, but like. 
a corner or something with a group of people and I'll kind of like be quiet mm. yeah it's a bit and do you think they're just smoking cigarettes or are they smoking weed um, I'm not sure from yeah. like they're a bit away from me but I mean I talked about that kind of stuff in school so right. yeah that's interesting I, I do spot it more now that we've talked about it more and like with Jason said you know, if we took a walk down the street you'd see drug litter evidence of drug use you'd be able to spot yeah, that yeah. and I just see I think what I notice is that people that are living at street level in the city centre I think I don't think you've got a home to go to and I think the way that they look looks like they're probably going in and out of drug deals and in and out of feeling high, feeling strung out and doing that cycle of addiction. And I, I don't think I would have noticed that before I had these sort of conversations with people like Jason. Yeah, yeah. And one little thing that he will be really pleased about, he, in fact he's already tweeted about it in the things himself, is that in Middlesbrough, where Jason is this week, I think for some conference or something, they have... I think they're the first police force to do a legal heroin treatment centre. So they've chosen 15 addicts who the, the police know in that town are committing hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of crime every year. Yeah. And they will now get free medical grade, proper, decent heroin twice a day. They go to this place that he called that the overdose prevention center mm. and the police won't arrest them for it the idea being that because they don't need to go and scratch around to steal stuff to get the money to buy the drugs they just know that they're getting it twice a day then they can go to get a job exactly <laughs> yeah hopefully that's it that'd be the idea that they might end up being productive rather than a drain on on the town of Middlesbrough although it's yeah. quite interesting he was just talking about it and and it's already starting to happen so it might be in a few months or maybe in a few years that every town that's got serious addicts ends up with a place yeah. where they can get legal heroin interesting yeah uh, uh well thanks for listening and one more episode next week and then we're done for this little bit yeah we'll have a rest <laughs> the system only dreams